All right, we're going to go tonight to the book of Esther. Uh, what am I saying? I just got through reading through Esther. Uh, Ezra. Well, I mean, they could be brother and sister, you know, Esther, Ezra. Okay, Ezra. The book of Ezra. Man, I don't know where that came from. Let me see where I got my Bible open. Yep, it's Ezra, so we're doing pretty good. Ezra. <clears throat> now, before we read, let me ask you a question or two here. <clears throat> you know, we, we know verses like um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Oh, I love that passage. Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Now, we have to understand that's not a blank check for God to give us everything that we crave or everything we desire, everything we even think we want or need. That's, that's not what that is. Uh, James said, uh, you have not because you ask not. And then he went ahead and he said, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss. Why? That you may consume it upon your lusts. And so I think maybe there are folks that maybe get frustrated in uh, some of the great and wonderful promises. There are more. We know that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And we could go on and on about verses that have to do with that, but get frustrated because it seems they see others having their prayers answered and getting what they ask from God, but maybe not so much in their own experience or their own life. And so I want to preach to you tonight out of the book of Ezra and chapter number seven and the title of the sermon. Now get ready for this. This is very unlike uh, Sam Davison title. All right. How to have or receive everything you want from God and more. Now that sounds like a title to come over from the guy at Lakewood, doesn't it? You know what I'm saying? Nobody's ever accused me of being that kind of a positive thinker or something like anything like that. But the difference would be we're going to actually take that from the Word of God. How to have what you want from God and more. Yeah. On the authority of the Word of God. Not to try to fit into the positive thinking crowd out here. Not to try to appease a craving uh, people but on the authority of the Word of God, how is it we can position, be in a position to get what we ask from God, and I'm going to submit out of this passage more. All right? Let's stand together, shall we? We're going to read in Ezra chapter 7, and uh, beginning in verse number 1. Now, I'm going to read a few verses, and then I'm going to have you seated, and we're going to do a little bit of a background work. Now, the pastor said the storm wasn't supposed to be here, or rain, or whatever it is, till 9 o'clock. And so I feel the real pressure to be done before then. Now, Brother Don had a good idea. He said, well, if you preach past that, then just preach through the storm. Well, that's got a good sound to it anyway, doesn't it? So I think the storm's supposed to be through about 1030, so we should be good here tonight. All right. Look in Ezra chapter 7. Look in verse number 1. Now, after these things, that's what we're going to talk about. What do you mean after these things? Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sarai, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, and then he goes on and lists names there, 
down uh, to verse number 5, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. So what he does, he gives the lineage of um, Ezra and shows that this Ezra is of a, a direct descendant of Aaron, the chief priest. Now, that may not set you on the edge of your seat. Wow, this man is a de direct descendant of Aaron. But if you are a Jew, and if you were a Jew of that time, then it would have been a huge deal that this individual is a direct descendant of someone so significant as Aaron was to the nation of Israel in their covenant relationship with God, Ezra. All right, look at verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Now this was the king Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And the king is granting, now watch this, Ezra went up, uh, let's see, and the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. And there went up some of the children of Israel and of the priests and the Levites, singers and porters and Nethanims unto Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. And he came, Ezra with uh, others, came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra has prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach Israel and uh, statutes and judgments. Now this is the copy, all right? So for him to go from Babylon, Ezra, for him to go from Babylon back to Jerusalem, he couldn't just up and go. You got to understand that the Babylonian Empire had fallen into the hands of the Medes and the Persians, and the Persians were in control. And so they had control of this vast empire, which would include Palestine, which would include Jerusalem, which would include that whole region we know as the Holy Land. And Persia was in control. So in order for Ezra to go, he had to have permission from the king. Now, I know, I know, some old-time preacher would say, bless God, we don't care if the king likes it or not. We're going to do what God says to do. Well, I, I, right, I, I really like the sound of that myself. Uh, the only thing is he'd never made it back to Jerusalem. And so he was following the proper process, and that would be to go by permission of, and in this case with the blessing of, the king of Persia from Babylon and back to Jerusalem. All right? Now, this is the copy of the letter that the king Artaxerxes gave unto Ezra the priest, the scribe, even a scribe of the words of the commandments of the Lord and of the statutes of Israel. Here's the letter. Artaxerxes, king of kings, unto Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace and at such a time. And in the letter, verse 13, and I make a decree that, all right? So now from verse number 13 down through verse number 26, 
Oh, we have a list of the decrees that Artaxerxes made in a letter to Ezra, watch, to give him passage from Babylon back to Jerusalem. All right? So I'm not going to read all of those. I'm going to mention them to you as we go along here. But it's a list of the, it's a list of what uh, the king Artaxerxes is granting or giving permission to Ezra so that he might lead the people back to Jerusalem to accomplish what God wants accomplished. We'll talk about that here in just a second. Now, the letter is in his hand. The contents are amazing. I can tell you this, that from verse number 13 through 26, it's utterly amazing what is there and what the king Artaxerxes granted. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. And just to show you how amazing it is, look down at verse 27. Now, the, the, the letter is over. And when Ezra got the letter and read it, look at his response in verse 27. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and hath extended mercy unto me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's uh, mighty princes, and I was strengthened as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. I gathered together out of Israel chief men to go with me. So when Ezra read the letter, what did he say? That's nice. No, he didn't say that's nice. He said, blessed be the Lord God of our fathers. I'm just telling you, a few Baptists could use some of this. I'm, I'm here to tell you, he got excited. I mean, he was revved up, he was fired up, he was excited. Look at this. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which has put such a thing in the king's heart. All right? So we're going to preach about that tonight. How to get what you want from God and more. Boy, that title sounds, ooh, I don't even like the sound of the title. But it's here. We'll like it by the time this is over. About 9.30. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. Lord, we are grateful for your precious word. How often are we encouraged, exhorted uh, by your word? It is not only so that we receive correction and chastening and rebuke and reproof from the preaching of thy word. We also receive exhortation, encouragement, motivation to act upon thy word and accompanied by great and precious promises. We pray your blessings now upon this time together. May it be meaningful and profitable in every life individually and in the life of this church corporately. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, friends. You may be seated. God bless you. Now, <clears throat> I'll just, uh, I want you to stay with me here just a, just a little bit. My wife said I spend too much time in background and stuff like that, so I, I may do that. I may. But I just tell her, when you preach, do it the way you want to. So I'm going to go ahead and give some background <laughs> here that I think is important. <clears throat> you see, the first six chapters of Ezra are not about Ezra. Actually, the first six chapters of Ezra have to do with a recounting of what has taken place <coughs> up to chapter 7 under previous leadership. Now, come on, let's, let's think here together. Uh, remember the prophecy was made that after about 400 years in the land, 
under judges, under the judges that is in the land of Canaan, and then another about 400 years under kings, about 800 years in the land, and the sin of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of the Jews has come up before God, and about 100 years before Israel, Judah was taken into Babylonian captivity, the northern kingdom was made extinct uh, under the uh, power of the Assyrians. And this is under the judgment of God because their sin came up before God and they defiled the land just like the pagans, the heathen before them had defiled the land. And God had warned them, he said, if you do what they did with this land, the land will spew you out like it did them. Well, they did like the heathens before them, went into idolatry and all kinds of perverse practice. And so the northern kingdom then was split up and torn up and under authority of Assyria. And the southern kingdom then under Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon was taken into captivity. The city of Jerusalem utterly destroyed. I mean, all the way down to the walls, the city burned, the streets soaked with the blood of people of the Jews from the ruthless Babylonian army, and the land was left desolate. So they were carried away, just like Jeremiah said they would be, just like Isaiah said they would be, that they would be carried away into captivity into Babylon, and they were. And it was a 70-year period that they were there under Babylonian captivity when the Babylonian empire fell. And now we see that after the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire came into existence, and we're reading about them, not the Babylonians, in the book of Ezra. Now, uh, when the Babylonian captivity was over, there followed three waves of Jews returning from Babylon back to the city of Jerusalem. Three different movements led by three different men. I heard it put this way. It's not original with me, but I heard it put this way. They were all builders. And uh, the first wave was led back by a man by the name of Zerubbabel, the governor, and J Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. And so you had the, the political, not the political leader, but the civic leader in, in Zerubbabel, the governor, and the spiritual leader, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, they went back to Jerusalem first with the first wave, and their purpose was to rebuild the temple. They went back to rebuild the temple, which they did. They went back to rebuild the temple after about a first year. After about the first year, then they laid the foundation of the temple. Everybody's excited because the foundation of the temple, it, it had been so destroyed uh, so much destroyed that when they got ready to rebuild, they had to start with a whole new foundation. And so they laid the foundation of the temple. Everybody's excited. Look at this. We're on our way. And some of the people were saying, no, it's not going to be like a former glory. But nonetheless, there was general joy that was taking place there. And then after the foundation and the excitement that that created, they didn't do another thing for 16 years. 16 years. It just sat there. And uh, then that's when you had priests, I'm sorry, prophets that came. And, and Haggai the prophet came. Zechariah came. And they would come and preach to them and say, it's time to get the house of God built. And so Zerubbabel got stirred up and Joshua the son of Josedek, they had a revival. They got right with God. You can read it in the book of Haggai. They got right with God and they built the temple. And they finally had it finished after 20 years after they went there. 
So they laid it after the first year. Then they laid the foundation of the temple, which took a few months. And then for the next 16 years, they did nothing. And then after 20 years, it was there. All right. And so then the next movement is going to be led by Ezra. Now look with me in chapter 7 and verse 1. Because see, verse 6 is a list of the record, the genealogy of the people that went there from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And the number of the people that went back and all of that, that's in the first six chapters. Now look in verse number one of chapter seven. Now after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah. Now Ezra's going to lead. Notice he said, after these things. Now here's the thing we got to get. Between the last verse of chapter six and the first verse of chapter seven, 58 years have passed. 58 years. And the reason this is important is because when they rebuilt the temple, that was a great time as well. Chapter 6 ends on a pretty high note. And if you read the whole revelation about it, you'll see that they observed the Passover again. And they thought there were many people that thought there'll never be the Passover in Jerusalem again. Well, there was. There'll never be the house of God there again, but there was. And these Jews were observing the Passover after the um, temple was rebuilt. And there was great excitement, great enthusiasm about this. And, and now watch this. But 58 years have passed. So if you imagine when the Jews got to go back to Jerusalem, see the temple rebuilt, and then observe the Passover don't you know that the first Passover, there was great excitement, like the land was laid so desolate. Desolate. Whoever dreamed this building would be standing here again. The land was laid so desolate and in a, such utter ruin. Whoever believed there'd be this many people here, 40,000 or more, that would be willing to, or, or able to observe the Passover. Isn't this an exciting thing? And I imagine that first Passover is quite an event. You can read it in, chapter, in, in the first chapters. Yes, sir, it's quite an event. Very good. Yes, sir. The house of God was built. It was an exciting thing. I imagine the second year was too. Probably. I imagine by the fifth year they're saying, can you believe it's been five years and we're still observing? I imagine by the tenth year somebody would say, well, it's time to do the Passover again. By the twentieth year they're saying, it's Passover time again. Now don't look at me weird. We, we know how human nature is. We know how there is a tendency to have a rush of spiritual enthusiasm, but I'm just telling you a lot of things have to be in place for that to be a meaningful event year after year after year after year after year after year. As a matter of fact, if you'll see what God established in order for them to bring their offerings and their sacrifices and give worship to the Lord, do you know what he meant for them to do? The same thing in the same place year after year after year after year. I'm about up to here with hearing well, we've got to change this, and we've got to change that, and we've got to change another thing, because people get so used to it. If people get used to doing what God said to do, the problem is in the heart of man, not the program of God. That is amen worthy. It is. I said, if doing what God says to do gets to be humdrum, then there's something. In, I, I, if we're doing what God said to do, whether it's the Lord's Supper, assembling here, singing songs and giving praise to God, sitting down and giving attention to the Word of God, if that gets to be humdrum, the problem is in our heart, not in the plan and program of God. Amen, 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 amen. As a matter of fact, under Hezekiah, I can show you where under Hezekiah, 
and he was restoring worship under his reign as a good king. I don't have time to get off on this, but you already got me there. So under Hezekiah, when they had their great celebration and their revival, you know what Hezekiah did? He said, bring me the music and the instruments of David. Oh, come on, that was 400 years ago. You don't want to be singing that music. That's what he wanted. So they did. Yep. Absolutely. It's amazing. And and so I'm just saying, if we do the same thing over and over, and it becomes, oh boy, here we go again. The problem is in the heart of man. It is not in what God expects. That's not where the problem lies. Amen. Well, that's a good point. Thank you very much. Yes, you're welcome. Very good. Mm -hmm. and, and so, I mean, so 20 years pass, 30 years pass, 58 years pass. So you know who's going to come back now with people? Ezra, right here in our account. I thought you said they were all builders. Uh, he's going to come back and rebuild the people. That's where the need lies. And 11 years later then, Nehemiah's going to come back and build the walls, see. And so all of these men, Zerubbabel, build the house of God. Uh, Ezra, you come back and rebuild the people. There needs to be a revival. And there was. It took place. And there was a reviving again. And you come back and rebuild the people because God's not interested that his people go through the motion without heart. God's never been impressed with that. And that's what was taking place again with the people back in the land. So he stirs it up so that Ezra comes back and he's going to rebuild the people. And then again, Nehemiah will come back later and rebuild the walls. Now, <clears throat> one of the things I think will help us uh, get a picture, get a grasp of this passage, is to understand who this man Ezra is. I've already mentioned, uh, and so I'm not going to make a big deal and go into long detail about it, but I've already mentioned he is a direct descendant of Aaron. And you see the genealogy right there in the first uh, five verses. And, and that this Ezra is a direct descendant of Aaron. Now, I want you to think about that. When you think about who Aaron was and the progenitor of that priestly family uh, in the house of Israel and the covenant that God made with them, and Aaron was the pretty much the progenitor of that priestly group, okay? And so Aaron was a very, very significant individual. And if you just follow it down there through the line, you'll see that, uh, that Aaron was the great, great several times grandfather of this man by the name of Ezra. Well, what I'm trying to make out of that is this. He was of a privileged lineage. Now, you and, you and I might now sit there and think, boy, this was this man privileged or what? But if you had the mind of the Jews, then you would look at Ezra and you would be impressed with his kind of leadership and the kind of priest that he was because he was a direct descendant of Aaron. Privileged lineage. The second thing it says about him is that he was a priest. And so the priest, is that a high office? Of course it was a high office. As a direct descendant of Aaron and fulfilling the uh, role of the priest, the priest would have been the teachers. 
The priests would have been those who offer sacrifices and offerings to God on behalf of the people. We understand the role of the priest. They would be like those that stood between the people and God and were like intercessors. And they would offer these offerings on their behalf according to the command of the Lord. And so the people would bring their offerings and sacrifices. The priests would take them and they would offer them as the Lord instructed before the Lord. And Ezra was one of them. He was a spiritual leader. And he was a scribe. Not necessarily every priest was a scribe. So he's a privileged lineage. He was a priest and then he was a scribe. But the Bible says something in our reading about Ezra as a scribe. It says that he was a ready scribe. Now, the scribes, somebody says, oh, I know what they did. They took the uh, revelation of God, the tablets and the scrolls and what was available there. That was the word of God uh, from Moses. And they would write down these words and they would make copies. Not everybody had a Bible under their arm like you came in here today. And so the business of the scribe was to watch meticulously, meticulously uh, copy the scripture, copy the law, copy the Pentateuch. Copy the books of Moses and the revelation that had been given. And they would do this with great effort. They said that they were so serious about it. You can read this in history and stuff. That every time they came to the name of Yahweh or Jehovah or God, they would first wash their hands and go write it. didn't matter if it was three times in one verse. They would wash their hands. They were very serious about it. But they didn't, listen people, they didn't just mindlessly copy it down. They were supposed to know what it meant. If you're a priest and a scribe, they're supposed to understand the Word of God. Because it was also the scribes that would write what we might want to call the Sabbath lessons. Because on the Sabbath day, they didn't just sit around and say, oh, okay, so here we are. We don't have to do this or that or the, on another day. It's a day of rest. Well, it's a rest from our labors and our interests and such as that. But on the Sabbath day, they would give attention to the law of God. And the law of God was supposed to do those lessons that had been prepared by the scribes and taught by the priests. And so the scribes had to be expositors. In other words, they didn't have to just write down what God said. Why is this here? What does God mean by this? What is the intent of God in this? And so the scribes were diligent students of that law. See, and the Bible says about Ezra, he was a ready scribe. Is there anybody in here that you just love mathematics? Anybody like that? Anybody here? Three or four weird people in here that, uh, I'm just kidding, like uh, mathematics. To me, oh boy, no. Uh, I went into, let me see, what is it? Uh, algebra 1. What would that have been? My sophomore year? Is that when I should have gone into Algebra 1 or is that Geometry? Whichever one it was, Algebra 1, Geometry, I went in there, and after one week, Mrs. Brorson, the teacher, said, Sam, I think we shall find another class for you to be in. So I didn't have to take all that stuff. And I know it's been a great hindrance in my life as a preacher that I never took Geometry or Algebra 1 or Algebra 2 and all of that kind of thing. No doubt it's been a hindrance somehow. I don't know how, but somehow it surely has been. But I didn't take that. And right now, I mean, I can figure out my tithe, all right. Come on, I'm, I'm not totally incapable. I can figure out my tithe pretty accurately, and I can add and all of that kind of thing. My wife and I play some dominoes in some spare time once in a while. I can add them up faster than she can, although she made straight A's and I never did. And so I can add, I can do all of that. But as far as going beyond and math, oh, geez, it just drives me nuts to think about it. 
I got a nephew that has been living in Europe for I don't know how long, works for Raytheon. I have no idea how much money the guy's made in his life. And I'm just telling you, when he got from Oklahoma State University, he got his master's degree. He came and brought me his uh, work that he wrote. And they put in book form like a thesis, you know. And he said uh, to me, he was attending our church at the time. And he came and said, Uncle Sam, now don't laugh about that. I'm, my name is Sam. I'm his uncle. So he called me Uncle Sam. All right. So he said, Uncle Sam, you want to see my book here that I did, that I got my master's degree on? And I may graduate the top. Uh, you know, and I said, yeah, yeah, I grabbed his book. You might as well give me a book in Chinese that made no sense to me whatsoever. I thumbed through that and I said, wow. And I turned another page and another page. He said, what do you think? I said, Chuck, I've never seen anything like this, which was true. You know, now I had no idea what I was looking at or anything like that. But Chuck's a ready mathematician. Me, I can figure out what I have to to get by. But Chuck's over here with high calculus and all kinds of stuff, and he's loving it. Now, that's what's really weird to me. That somebody can take all of that stuff, and they just eat it up, and they enjoy it, and they love it. If you can get the picture in your mind back there that you've got a, a, a row of tribe, uh, scribes that are sitting here, and this scribe, and this scribe, and this scribe, and these scribes are over here, and they're laboring, and they're toiling because they have to get this right, and this isn't just something they can do mindlessly. They have to give thought. They're going to work up lessons, and they're laboring, and they're trying to get it right. I know what it is to set over the Word of God myself and try to prepare a sermon, and I want to get it right and labor and walk the floor and go back and forth and pray some more and read some more and study some more because I want to get it right and I want to get it clear and I want to get it strong and I can see that scribe doing it and oh Ezra's sitting over here saying I love this stuff well that's a ready scribe he, he's well equipped for it. it the word means ready it means it flows easy didn't mean he didn't work at it but it came quickly and it flowed well and here's Ezra so here's what the Bible says about him Ezra was of a privileged lineage, same in, so I can keep going. He was of a privileged lineage. He was a priest who had a great solemn spiritual responsibility, and he was a ready scribe of the Lord. And the Bible says that it's this Ezra that we're talking about. That the Lord, now watch this, put it upon him and stirred him up in the time of Ezra that he would uh, be able to go back to Jerusalem by the stirring and the moving of God so that the people might re be rebuilt and be spiritual minded. In order for him to go, he had to get a grant from the king. So he presented his petition to the king and he made certain requests. What does the Bible say there in verse number six? That he granted him all his requests. Well, somebody said, what did he request? Can I have your attention? All we know that he requests, all we know that he requested, it's only known by what Artaxerxes granted. So in verse 13 through 26, it's the letter that tells what Artaxerxes is granting. So we don't have a written list where Ezra said, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. But when we read what he granted, then we know, the Bible already says, that, uh, that, that the king granted him all of his requests. See? 
And so in order for him to leave uh, Babylon and go make the, what is it, about a three-month journey I think they would be on, by the time they would get back to Jerusalem, in order for him to do that, there had to be a lot of things in place or this could be a futile journey, see. And so the king then looks it over and makes a letter that grants the request. Verse 13, now watch this. I'm going to go through this fast as I can. In verse number 13, I make a decree that. So, friends, starting in verse 13, he says, uh, you can go back, verse 13 and 14, you can go back with all the people that are willing to go and the law of your God in your hand. Somebody said, well, I, I don't see any big deal there. I do. You can go back with all the people that are willing to go, watch, with the law of God in your hand. Now, did you ever in your time sitting in Sunday school and preaching and reading the Bible, did you ever hear about the law of the Medes and the Persians? Well, what, what do we know about the law of the Medes and the Persians? Well, the one thing we know about the law of the Medes and Persians is once there's something is established as law, it can't be reversed, even by the king. The king's not able, even able to undo anything. And it's called the law of the Medes and the Persians. And there might be parents that have used that or somebody else says, well, this is basically what we try to do here or what I'm striving for. It's not the law of the Medes and the Persians, but this is what we prefer, your attitude or behavior or, or the accomplishment that we want done. It's not the law of the Medes and the Persians mean if you don't do this, it's all over. But this is what we would like. All right. So the law of the Medes and the Persians is really strong. Now, would you think about this? He said, <laughs> the king of Persia said, you take the law of God in your hands, if you're God, in your hands and go back to Jerusalem. I wonder if there might be the possibility if the law of the Medes and the Persians, pagans, idolaters, heathens. I wonder if the law of the Medes and the Persians and the law of God might, uh, you know, collide at some time. See. Well, I can see you're not getting really revved up about this, but to me it's a significant point. That you can go back to Jerusalem, a place that is under the authority of Persia and the king of Persia, and you can practice the law of your God. That's what he said. Now, I don't think the man even knew what he was saying, really. I don't think he took into account that in order for those people to obey their God, there will likely be points along the way when they must... They, they must disobey the commands of the king of Persia. But be that as it, may, as it may, then he already granted them permission. You go back to Jerusalem for this purpose. You take the law of God in your hands and go practice what you do before your God. Now, that's, that's no small thing. That's no small thing. But since you're not so impressed with that, I'll leave that and go to verse number 15. Look in verse 15. In verse 15 down through verse 18, here's what it's about. Okay. You see it, and I've got it marked in my Bible, you can mark it in yours somehow. Now, here, here's what that's about. Before you go, you can go around to the Jewish people in the empire there, in Babylon and Persia, and Medo, Medes. You can go in your area where the Jews are and gather up all the money you want. If they want to support this cause, then you just collect all the money that, that they want to give. Somebody said, oh, so, um, you know, history kind of proves that uh, 
there's something about the sons of Jacob that even in the most difficult of circumstances, they wind up faring fairly well uh, in economic situations, economically. See, and you, you have to understand that while the Jews were in Babylon, that 70 years of captivity, they weren't sitting on their hands saying, poor us. No, they're very industrious people, very prosperous people, and are very savvy people. And during that 70 years, they got well established in the land. So much so that many of them didn't want to go back. And they had gotten so established, so prosperous, and so wealthy, they didn't even want to go back. Okay, so what I'm trying to say is, it's very possible, even likely, that after 70 years, oh no, it hadn't been 70 years. Remember that 58 years? It's been 128 years. They've had quite a bit of time to get established, haven't they? I'm just saying, a significant part of the economy of Persia could have a whole lot to do with the wealth of the Jewish people. And yet he says to him, now you go around to your own people and you are free to collect all the money they want to give and take it back to Jerusalem. That's what he said. I'm trying to make you see, that's, that's quite a deal. I don't think it would have made the record here if it wasn't a big deal. It was a big deal. All right, now the next thing is, look in, <laughs> this gets so good. Look in verse number 19 and 20. Here he says, Okay, all the vessels that are still here that were brought from Jerusalem in the Babylonian captivity, all the vessels that are still here that you need to take back to Jerusalem to worship your God, go get them and take them back. So we know Ezra requested that, don't we? Because that's what he granted, and he granted all of his requests. And so he did that. But then he had another thing that I'd almost guarantee you that Ezra didn't request. He said, if you see that something is lacking, just go to the king's treasure house and help yourself. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, look, I've preached in empty rooms and had fun all by myself. And if I have to tonight, I will. Now, I mean, this is some amazing stuff here. Look in verse 21 through 23. Here the king says, when you get over to Jerusalem and find out you're lacking something, tell this isn't word for word, tell my boys there and they'll give you whatever you need. So it doesn't matter what it is. When you get back there and you realize, oh, we don't have enough of this or we don't have enough of that or we forgot to get this or we forgot to get that, you just tell my men that are in position there and they will give you whatever it needs for you to get done what you're trying to do. And then look in verse 24. We also certify you that you're not going to pay any tribute, toll, custom upon any of the stuff that you're taking. They're taking back money. Somebody say amen. They're taking back money. They're taking back treasures and vessels of gold and silver and precious matter, material. And they're taking this back. And when they come to this toll uh, station and this toll station where normally travelers and people trafficking in goods would be taxed, no toll, no tax, you go duty free. So apparently Ezra asked for that and he got it. Look at verse 25. Here he says, I also am going to give you cooperation from all of those along the way and those back in Jerusalem. And, and listen to this, if they don't cooperate with you, I'll make them wish they would have. We'll burn their houses down and make them a dunghill. <laughs> okay. 
So if, so, if Ezra goes back and there's somebody says, no, you're not going, you can't pass through here, or no, you can't do this, or you can't do that, and they are not cooperating with the king's letter, you just let me know. They'll wish they'd have cooperated. Amen. So he assures them full cooperation. Now that was all in that letter. And at the end of it, see, while you're just sitting there saying, okay, so what? Well, here's what, so what? <laughs> Look in verse number 27. Ezra said, this is a big deal. Blessed be the God and Father, uh, which hath put such a thing in, uh, as this in the king's heart. I mean, he just clears off a spot and starts praising the Lord and giving blessing to God because he understood that the heart of the king must be in the hand of the Lord and like rivers of water, he turneth it whatsoever he will. And what he did is he saw God answer every request that he had and God touched upon that king's heart to grant him. I doubt the king even thought about what he was doing. In fact, I can see him going home that day he sent that letter out. Artaxerxes. I can see him, come on, I got an imagination. He walks in the house and his wife said, welcome home, Art. She called him Art. I mean, come on, you don't have to be so formal. And said, welcome home, Art. And he walks in. She said, well, how did it go today? As she takes his slippers off and all that stuff. Oh, boy, am I dreaming. But anyway, uh, takes his slippers off and said, how did it go today, Art? And he said, well, it's, again, it's kind of a weird day. What do you mean it's a weird day? Well, you've heard me talk about that guy named Ezra. He's a real significant leader among those Israelites. And Ezra, he submitted a request to me by letter uh, because he wants to lead as many people as are willing to go back to Jerusalem to their homeland. And uh, would you grant it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think that's such a bad thing. I mean, you know, we got plenty of Israelites here anyway, and we may have a larger presence than we really need here. And so that might not be a bad thing. So I don't think you have to feel so weird about that. Yeah, but but, but what? Well, uh, but he wanted to take, um, he, he needed a significant amount of money, so I granted him the permission to go to all the Jews that are in this region and and here in Persia and in Babylon, and he can go to all the Jews that are settled in here and collect from them all the money that they're willing to give to help for this cause back in Jerusalem. You did why? Honey, do you realize that many of these are some of the most prosperous people? Do you understand what might be leaving our economy and going back to this place? And we have no desire to be over there anyway. It just happened to fall us when we overthrew the Babylonians. We didn't do anything to win that uh, territory there. And you're saying, what? These people can send all the money back they want? Do you realize the dent this could cause right here in our own economy? I'm, I'm not sure that that was a good idea. Well, I know, but it's already decreed. I've already done it. Well, I don't know what you're thinking about. What else did you do? Well, I told them they could take all the vessels they brought from Jerusalem, take them back. Well, okay, I, I can see that. But I also told him just if he needed anything, go to the king's treasure house and take everything you want. You what? What did you do that for? I mean, we have a lot of artifacts there. We have a lot of valuables there. You just gave him the key to the king's house or granted to the keeper of the king's treasure house and he can take what he wants? Yeah. What would you do that for? Kind of what I'm wondering. Hmm, no. Yeah. Well, the next thing you know, you'll let them go back duty free. Yeah, I did that too. So, I mean, can't you see what's going on here? 
And, and it's just amazing. It, this is astounding. I don't know if you've ever read it that way or if you're feeling that way right now, but I can tell you right now from the standpoint of uh, Ezra in trying to accomplish the purposes of God, this is an incredible thing that he made this request. And the Bible says that God granted his request, not according to the generosity of the heart of Artaxerxes. Amen. Not because Artaxerxes was a good man and he had sympathy to these people. This is all because God knew Ezra and heard his request and granted him everything that he requested and more. He did. And he goes back, says, bless the Lord, and led in a revival back home. There it is. There it is. Oh, about forgot. About forgot verse 10. That has a whole lot to do with why God granted him this request. And so stirred the heart of the king. And sent him back with everything he asked and more. Verse number 10. Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to tune in real good right here. When it says, for Ezra, for Ezra, God did this for him. And, and what we have after this verse is that big list of stuff that came in the letter of Artaxerxes, but it's already been stated the king granted him his request according to, not the goodness of the king, not the goodness of Artaxerxes, but according to the hand of the Lord his God that was upon him. For, verse 10, Ezra had prepared. Now, I've, I've studied this out, Pastor. You and I have been talking about, you know, giving attention to some detail and stuff. We want to do it right, handle the word of God right. And when it says, for Ezra had, I want to make sure that had it meant exactly what it looks like it means. Because what it looks like it means is that Ezra had done this not as Okay, I think I should go back to Jerusalem, so I'm going to start uh, seeking uh, the law of God. I want to do what God's Word says. No. Rather, when it says, for Ezra had prepared his heart, it's more like a way of life. It's more like this is how he lived. That this man lived his life by his heart being prepared by seeking the law of the Lord. It would be sort of like Daniel. How many of you believe when Daniel got carried into Babylonian captivity there at the first, how many of you believe that Daniel got there and he's thought, oh man, let's see. I don't know if I'm going to eat the king's meat or not. I don't know if I'm going to drink the portion of the king's wine or not. No, if you read the accounts, you can see Daniel already said that before there. He settled that before there was a captivity. I said that was something already settled in his heart. That was not going to be a part of his life. It was a way of life with him that in order that he might please God and honor God, he's going to abstain from the things that defile in the ways of the pagan and the heathen and the ungodly and the idolaters and such as that. And so uh, Ezra is in the exact same boat. And Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. And somebody might be sitting here and you say, yeah, but you already said he's of a privileged lineage and I'm not. Really? I feel like I am. I feel like I am. I'm talking about my physical birth, you know. My great-great-grandfather was a Baptist preacher 
His name was Samuel Stinnett Davison, so is mine. He was a Baptist preacher in England. He and his son came over to the United States. Uh, they fell in with Seventh-day Baptists and kind of got off track there. But, I mean, these were God-fearing men, and he, they pastored churches. I could show you in the book of history book of old, old volumes I got, where Samuel S. Davison conducted uh, and moderated meetings and preached at some of their meetings back in New Jersey and all over the Northeast there. He went from there up to Wisconsin, from there down to Iowa. My great-great-grandfather I was named after is buried there. Then his son came and started a church over in Major County, western Oklahoma, where I was born, and where all of my family uh, and my mother's family come from. And he was over there. The church that he started back then is still there. He was a farmer and a rancher and a preacher. He was a member of the second Oklahoma legislature. And at the end of two years of serving in the, in the second Oklahoma legislature from 1909 to 1911, he wrote in his memoirs, I will not run for re-election. Oklahoma politics is no place for the man of God. That's what he said back then. So I kind of look at my heritage and just look at my mom and my dad. My dad got saved when he was 28 years old. It's a long story, but it's a wonderful story. I'm so glad my dad got saved and I got to be raised by a Christian dad. Didn't hear him cuss. I mean, I, I did, you know, drink. All of that kind of garbage. None of that was in our home. The, he read the Bible to us every morning. We read the Bible every night. We prayed in our house. We were in the house of God. We, we didn't just go because that's what we do. I mean, we were there. You know what I mean? I feel so blessed to have the kind of heritage I did. I found out after I started being a preacher that my mom was praying for a preacher before I was even thought of. Yeah, I just feel so blessed and so privileged. Somebody says, well, that's not the way I was raised. I'm sorry. But I will ask you this. Are you born again? Don't tell me you're not privileged. God's your father. You're his child. My Bible says we are a, we are a royal priesthood. We are kings and priests in him. That's who we are. Again, I'll repeat what I said the other night or what the Bible says. It just simply says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. That's what John is saying. Chapter 3, 1 John. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Don't read that like it's boring. The man is fired up about it. We are called the children of God. Paul's writing in chapter 8. And again, we are called the children of God. Heirs of... Hey, you say you're not privileged. If you're saved, you are an heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you ought to reevaluate who you are in Jesus Christ before you say, I'm not privileged in my lineage. In Jesus Christ you are. I said in Jesus Christ you are. And besides that, no matter who you are, you know Jesus Christ. Nothing, nothing, and no one can keep you from seeking the law of God, the word of God. We've got bus kids that have come like other churches have. It's unique to us. We've had bus kids that have come, gone all the way through Heartland Baptist Bible College, never had a bit of help from home, were discouraged from wasting their lives at Bible College, and have come through the halls of Heartland Baptist Bible College are out there serving the Lord right now that never had a bit of help. It would have been nice to have family backing. It would have been nice to have help. But I'm just telling you right now that there's not a thing in this world that can keep you from seeking the Word of God and knowing God by the revelation that He has made in His Word. 
Yeah, you're privileged, all right. Yeah, not like not like Ezra, so that therefore you can't seek God in His Word. Well, not like you. I didn't have that kind of family. So what? You can't therefore seek God in His Word. Some of the most dynamic Christians I've ever met came out of incredible, incredibly difficult backgrounds. Some of the preachers my wife and I have been with, um, she's listened to the tales, uh, the, uh, no, I shouldn't say tales, the testimonies of some of the preacher's wives that we look up to ourselves and love in the Lord and see where they came from in their life. All kinds, just a debauchery. And now a child of God serving the Lord, standing behind, beside her husband, living for Jesus Christ, loving the Lord. Some men that have had no, <laughs> no kind of godly influence. We talk a lot about influence, don't we? We talk a lot about it at Heartland Baptist Bible College. These guys come through. We're not here just to do our job till they get out of Bible College. Oh, my soul, we've got a window open to make the right kind of impact and the right kind of influence upon their lives. And everything they are needing to learn isn't going to be learned by a book in a classroom. It's going to be learned by observing people that are serious about God. I'm just telling you, I, I'm, I'm just telling you, if you want to, you can seek the Lord. That's what Ezra did. He sought the law of the Lord. Was he privileged? Well, yes. But you don't have to have that kind of privilege in order to have an interest in seeking God and His Word. Be Bible readers. I'm not trying to preach to you like you've not heard this. I'm not trying to preach to you like you're. I read the Bible and you don't. That's not what I mean at all. But when you go through the trials and the difficulties and the struggles of life and demands and schedule and such as that, let me just ask you to do this. Commit yourself to be a person of the Bible. Get your face in that book. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. 1991, I'd already been in the ministry since 1967, so by 91 would have been, what, 24 years? No, yeah, 67, yeah, 24 years. 24 years. I'm sitting there on a Sunday morning. I'd only been pastor about a year, and we had David Gibbs come and preach back then, 1991, so that's a long time ago. Brother David Gibbs got up that day, and he's telling that Sunday morning, I'm sitting down there on the front row, and I'm listening to the message, and he's up there preaching away, and David Gibbs said that he's flying along in his airplane, and uh, Charlie Craze, I think, was his partner, and he was the pilot, and he said, I'm going along there, and I'm preparing for this case that we're going to as a Christian lawyer, and he said, I'm looking, and Charlie just says to me out of the blue, he said, David, what's the most important book in the world? He said, well, Charlie, it's the Bible, of course. They're good friends and, you know, co-workers together. Well, it's the Bible. He said, when are you going to start reading it like it's the most important book in the world? Well, I beg your pardon. I read the Bible. He said, I didn't say you didn't. But do you read it like it's the most important book in the world? Well, I mean, as a attorney, Charlie, you know as well as I do, we have to be reading law books and cases and volumes of stuff all the time. David, what's the most important book in the world? It's the Bible, Charlie. When are you going to start reading it like it's the most important book in the world? And now he's getting steamed with his friend over here because he's putting the pressure on him. And he's saying, if it is what it is, if it is what we would all say amen to the fact that it is the most important book in the world, then when are we going to start reading it like it's the most important book in the world? And I'm sitting down there listening to that, and I'm getting under conviction. 
I mean, I'm just sitting down there. I'm the pastor of the church, and I've been to ministry for 24 years, 17 of them as a pastor, and I'm sitting down there uh, on that front row, and I'm listening, and it's like God is saying to my heart, this book is something more than a book or a source of sermon material for you to talk to other people. And you're reading it and you're studying it so that you can tell them. But you're not letting me tell you. And the first person at the altar that morning was me. And I'm down there committed myself. I'm going to read the Bible like it is what it is. The most important book in the world. I can't tell you what anybody else got out of that thing. I have no idea. But my little wife sitting right over here. And she'd tell you that was a defining moment in my life. Somebody says, how? Well, I know this sounds amazing, but the Word of God will change your life. <laughs> I said, the Word of God will change your life. You know, you know. now, I'm going to step on toes right here. If I don't get invited back, I, I'm not trying to not get invited back or to be invited back. But you can take a vast majority of the little devotional things that tell you a nice little story and give you a little poem and some little illustration. And if you want to look at them, go ahead. But forevermore, pick up your Bible and put your face in it and read it like it is what it is, the Word of God. I've had people say, well, I don't understand everything I read. Well, do you understand anything? <laughs> well, yes, we'll focus on what you do understand. Then read it again, you might get some more understanding. If God gave us the whole load all at once, it'd kill us. <laughs> I said, if God gave you everything you need for your life all at one time, it'd choke you flat to death. Amen. So read it, and what you do understand, run with it. And then read it again. And no doubt your understanding will begin to broaden. I, I said, no doubt in your understanding. And at what point the Holy Ghost of God, who knows you and knows where you are and what you need in your life, He might put a highlight where you never saw a highlight before because you're ready for this. Is everybody with me here? Yeah. There's nothing to keep you from doing that. Well, you see, no, no, I'm just saying, put the device down. Turn it off. Read the book. Turn the television off. Well, if you knew my schedule, <laughs> makes me want to cry. I have had a oh, somewhat busy schedule through the years. But it, 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 as a Christian, not as a preacher, if I'm too busy to put my face in this book, I'm beginning to think I was probably too busy. Period. Well, I don't know. Well, then don't expect to get everything you ask from God. If you're not doing what he had prepared his heart to do, ooh, that's a line, isn't it? Maybe it's going to take some new heart preparation. Maybe we're going to have to cut the strings of some of the other affections of our heart to have the affection we're supposed to have for the Word of God. You'll live without that TV program. You'll live without reading everybody's Facebook from here to ten buck two, wherever in the world that is. You'll you'll be fine without all that stuff. People were doing just fine before there was Twitter, Facebooks, photo chat, and whatever I don't know what all's on there. Twitter and all that stuff. People were doing 
<clears throat> just fine. I, can, I don't think anybody can prove that we are now better off because of this amazing technology. I don't think so. I don't think, that, I don't think anybody can say, I am a more spiritual person because of this technology. And I probably couldn't have got here without it. Am I too sarcastic for you here? I know you are. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, well, we've got to keep moving here. Look what else he said. And Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. Now, this is deep. This is deep. It may be over everybody's head, but let's give it a try. It's in the King James. But we're going to give it a try. <laughs> Look in verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. Is this heavy? In other words, when he saw something in the law of God that he wasn't doing that he should do, he did it. When he saw something in the law of God that he shouldn't be doing that he was doing, he didn't do it anymore. It's that simple. I said it's that simple. I, I, I think it was yesterday or somewhere. It might have been another church I was in. I don't remember for sure now. But I'm just talking about the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, just live in the Sermon on Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And, and when Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, and you realize that you have a divided heart, then deal with that before God. Blessed are the merciful, and you find you're not much to show mercy to people. Blessed are, the, uh, blessed are the they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, and you are a manipulator and a deceiver and a liar and a cheater. Then confess it to God and hunger and thirst to do the right thing before God. See, just act upon the Word of God. I was telling the brothers a story, Brother uh, David and, and Brother Jason, a story today. We were having lunch and we were talking together. And I, I just act upon what, you, what the Word of God says to you. Just act upon it. And it's sort of like the story I told uh, last night about chastening. Uh, it was 2010. I'd retired from the pastorate. My wife and I got put together that summer. I, I stepped aside in May, and things slowed down some after the month of May. Took a trip to Hawaii, and then we did some traveling, preaching to get uh, she traveling with me and everything. And I'm telling you that summer, we had a little time at home, and and I mean that summer in 2010, we got put together in chunks of time like we'd never known before. We'd never known that. Not in all of our marriage, in all of our life. Now I've traveled a long time preaching revivals, and when we had kids at home, she didn't get to go, and we were separated more than we ever wanted to be. But I'm just saying, all of a sudden, we are together all the time. Every day. To quote Sammy Allen down in Georgia, every day. Everybody listen to this. Hey, every day. <laughs> we were together. <laughs> it was great. For a while. <laughs> and then, I don't know, I'm just, I mean, I'm a man, I mean, even psychologists have discovered this to some degree, that men and women are different. <laughs> and and uh, just, it got to where, Pastor, everything that woman did, everything she did, bugged the daylights out of me. I mean... It just, I thought, wow, what is this? And she'd had her plenty of space, and I know I was, no doubt, uh, she never has said it, but I know it's probably so, that I was bugging her maybe as bad as she was bugging me. And I, and I found myself being cranky and hateful and not thoughtful like a husband is supposed to be. And it was not good. It was not good. And 
And I'm thinking, boy, this girl, man, I've done a poor job of training her. You know? <laughs> oh, so I'm sitting there doing my Bible reading in the morning. And I'm reading through Ephesians, which I was fairly familiar with. Just got through my last preaching exercise on Wednesday night at Southwest Baptist Church. is an exposition of uh, Ephesians. I've used Ephesians 5 and marriage counseling, premarital counseling, couples retreats, all kinds of stuff. I've preached out of Ephesians 5 so many times on wives, submit yourself to your husband. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. And that whole context and what's there, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. And all of that. I know, I know that. I know what it says. I've preached it to many people. And I'm sitting there reading. And I get down to about chapter 6. And something in me, which wasn't my flesh, it wasn't the devil, and the world is certainly not putting pressure on us to consider the Word of God more carefully. I'm almost sure it was the Lord. Just by the process of elimination, that's about all that's left, is the Lord who's speaking to my heart. You're not done in chapter 5. I go back and I read, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Well, I just read it, but this time I really read it. Do you want Jesus to treat you, his church, the way you're treating her? Do you think the possibility exists Jesus may have just about as much right to be frustrated with you as you do with her? Maybe even more? Is this what love is? You, uh, you don't love her. You don't love her. He says love her and you don't love her. I do. I'm arguing in my heart. I love her. Sure I do. Absolutely. Is this what love looks like? Could you read 1 Corinthians 13 and say, the way I love her is just how Paul described what charity is there in 1 Corinthians 13. They say, you know, I'm turning my ottoman into an altar and I'm down there confessing, God, I'm the problem. She doesn't have to do everything I think she ought to do. I don't want her to be like a man, really. I resent people calling her a guy, to tell you the truth. Hi, guys. And it's just two of us, you know. Hello, guys. Uh, she ain't a guy. I didn't marry a guy. Somebody say amen to that. Yeah. On purpose, I didn't marry a guy. And I don't want her to be like a man. I'm down there confessing my sins to God, and crying, and I get up and wipe my tears and keep reading my Bible. And after a while, the non-morning person gets up and moses through the den there and when she comes in I get up and I greet her I know I better take care of this right now and I set her down and I start explaining to her I said to Sandra I said Sandra about everything you do bugs me anymore she said no kidding so see she'd already picked up on it a little bit <laughs> and I said and and I I know I haven't treated you right I've been unkind I've been short tempered I, I, I've, I'm wrong, and God convicted me about it, showed her in the passage and how the Lord dealt with my heart. And I said, Sandra, I've already prayed, and I've asked God to forgive me. I need you to forgive me. And it's amazing how things sweetened up. Uh, uh, the wise guy in me says, that woman changed just like that, you know. But it wasn't her that needed to make the changes. It was all right here. Look at me, friend. When the Word of God speaks to you, and it definitely will if you're listening, then act upon what it says. This Ezra, 
Well, sure, he had a privileged background and all that. But what if he had read the Word of God and not do what the Word of God said? You think we'd be reading the story like this? Of course not. Will God speak to you exactly the way He spoke to Ezra? I don't know. Will God speak to you exactly like He does a preacher to study in the Bible, to teach it and preach it all the time? I don't know. I'm confident there are people in most all of our churches that know more than I do. But what good does it do to know it if we don't act upon what He says? Amen. And it doesn't have to be some cataclysmic, uh, potentially cataclysmic issue that's going to ruin the marriage or destroy the life. If God speaks to you about it, it's important. Amen. And don't bypass it like it's not. Uh, when you see what the Lord says to do, forevermore do it. And when the Word of God says this shouldn't be in your life, then forevermore put it out of your life. Just simply act upon the Word of God. People are running around saying the Christian life is so difficult. Oh, this world is so wicked. It's so hard to live the Christian life. No, it's not any harder than it's ever been. People make it hard because they won't do what it says. There are bitter people that know. Putting away all bitterness. Don't talk to me about the difficulty of the King James. This is not over anybody's head. You got bitterness, you got unforgiveness, you got resentment, put it away. Lay it down at the cross, give it to Jesus Christ. You're not supposed to have it in yourself. You don't want him to act to you like you're acting to somebody that offended you on a far less level than you offend God. Amen. Now put it away and be done with it and move on with your life. Confess it as the sin that is, is and go on for God. Well, if you knew what they did, there you go. Go ahead. While the people you're bitter against are moving on with life, you're wallowing over here in your bitterness and anger and frustration and lack of forgiveness. God speaks to you and he said, turn that computer off. It will poison your mind the direction you're going. Then don't keep fooling with it. I said, don't keep fooling with it. There are people... Out of the ministry, you stand in pulpits and preach as good a preaching as you could ever hear that aren't even fit to stand the pulpit now because simply they wouldn't put out of their life what God said is wrong. I mean, how difficult is this? Tithe. Obey God in tithing. It's under the law. Oh, God. Oh, please. I, all of us ought to be where a man that I just met up in Ohio, and he took me to the airport and we were talking. He is teaching his four-year-old son not to tithe. What do you think of that? He gives him $3 every week. He's got three piggy banks. This piggy bank is for the Lord. So that dollar goes to church every Sunday. This dollar is for his expenses. And this dollar is for saving. His expenses would be, can I buy this piece of gum or whatever the case might be, as he goes along as a four-year-old. And so he is, this dollar goes to the Lord every Sunday. This dollar goes for his weekly expenses. And this dollar is saved. And I said to him, Josh, you're teaching that boy not to tithe. He laughed and said, exactly. Exactly. 
Somebody said, well, I don't, I don't even know if I agree with that or not. Well, you know why you don't hear much about tithing in the book of Acts? If people were selling their property and giving everything they had to the work of God, why would you tell them? A tenth. <laughs> so why should this boy that's teaching his little, why should Josh's little boy learn, give 10% when the kid's already conditioned to give a third? Well, you can't live that way. We'll see. I said, we'll see. As a matter of fact, you can live that way. As a matter of fact, you talk about the law. Somebody say, yeah, that's all under the law. You know, under the law, they, they did more than tithe. When you take every offering that they were supposed to bring to the Lord on a regular basis, they wound up giving about 32% of their income back to the things of God in sacrifices, offering, priest offerings, this offering, that offering, that offering, and the tithe. It would amount to about 30-some percent. Somebody said, well, that if we give less under grace than they gave under the law, we're a disgrace to grace. Well, this ain't going over so good either, but I'm just saying, <laughs> obey the Word of God. Be generous. Be liberal. Give. Give. And then he said, and he wanted to teach others. Listen to me. If you learn the Word of God and it gets a hold of your heart, you act upon it and you reap the benefits of obedience to God, you will want someone else to know what you know. Yeah. So let me just back off and give you, I'm going to give you the CIT, the central idea of the text. Ezra's devotion to God's Word affected his devotion to God's work, which led him to ask incredible things from God, which he received from God. See, he didn't ask this list of stuff, nothing for himself. It was all about the work of God. I said it was all about the work of God. You know how you can, listen, you know how you can have everything you want? When your heart is prepared to seek the law of the Lord and your interest is not in what you want to indulge upon yourself, your interest is actually in doing the will of and the work of God. And when your, listen to this, when your devotion to God's word turns your devotion and causes you to have affection and desire and devotion to the work of God, then you can ask God according to the desires of your heart. And it won't be for a new Corvette and a bigger house and more money and fancier clothes and designer stuff and fancy this and fancy that and heaping everything upon yourself. It will have to do with how can I further the work of the gospel? Yeah. That's the prayer he'll answer. And, and it, was, it all started from his devotion to the word. It's right there. He had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. His devotion to the Word affected his devotion, his heart's devotion for the work of God so that what he asked for had to do not with his purposes but God's purposes and God was more than willing to grant him his request. Yes or no? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Lord, I pray that you would help us each one to consider the simplicity of this matter. We've talked a long time, no doubt. Tried to set the table and draw the picture here out of your word.
And it really is reduced simply to this. We're either going to prepare our heart to seek the Lord, to seek you, through your word. We're going to seek the law of the Lord. We're going to seek your word. We're going to prepare our heart to do that, or we're going to go through the ritual of it without heart, or not do it at all. Maybe there's some that need to do what I did that Sunday morning in April of 1991, and go to the altar and say, I'm not going to read this Bible just so what I can so I can have something to say to other people. I'm not going to read this Bible just as a religious exercise in my life. I'm going to prepare my heart to seek the law of the Lord. I'm going to give attention to his word, and when his word speaks to me, I'm going to act upon it. I'm not going to ignore it, thumb my nose at it, move on with my day like it didn't happen. I'm going to deal with it. Oh, God, maybe there are people in this room right now that are somewhat frustrated with their Christian life. And it's not anything really very complicated. It's really very simple. Oh, my, my, how complicated man's thinking can make living the Christian life. When your word shows us over and over, not just here, Seek the law of the Lord. Seek God's word. And do what it says. Stop doing what it says not to do. Now go help somebody else that needs help in their life. How simple can it be? And out of that simple, simple, simple formula, anybody can see it. Ezra got everything he asked of you and more. Why him and not us? I pray you'd help us to look at ourselves real good. Examine our own hearts. See where we are. And be willing, O oh Lord, to respond to you in a way where we are more devoted to your word, which creates more devotion to your work which dictates the nature of our requests from you, which allows you to show us your favor and favor with man. Oh God, may you by your Holy Spirit work in the lives of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we? We're going to have a time of invitation.